You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'll be talking with Michael Glass, Stoffel Hermann, and Jasper Waldenberg about averting a database apocalypse. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, database apocalypse. All right, we're here to talk about averting the database apocalypse. So why don't we just start with some quick introductions. Let's just go around. I got Jasper first. Sure. Hi, I'm Jasper. I'm in the Netherlands. I've been at Noreding for about four and a half years. And uh, I'm a big board game fan. Nice. Uh, Stiffel? Hi. Yeah, my name is Stiffel. been at Noreding for a little over five years. And I like handstands. I don't know. And Michael Glass. My name is Michael Glass. I'm based in Berlin, but I'm an American. And I like all of you three. I like human beings. Okay, cool. So yeah, let's talk about the apocalypse. So that's probably a good place to start. I I like to start every episode with something apocalyptic, as everyone knows. So when we say the database apocalypse, like what are we referring to in this episode? There's like two kind of sides of the apocalypse, right? In a lot of like organizations, there's like some big hairy piece of, not literally hairy, but you can imagine it being tangled. There's a big hairy piece of spaghetti code, which like holds the business together. And often that piece of code, and like, it's like a piece of code that like has accrued more and more complexity and technical debt to the point where no one feels comfortable changing it. Or like no one is given the budget to change it because they understand that it's going to cost a lot. Or like it's too risky to change because if you change it, you might like take down Facebook or something. So like this is a confluence of that piece of software in Noreding's tech stack being the bottleneck for like scalability, for allowing us to support more users, I think. The reason that we we like we have a, a pretty normal architecture we use Rails and MySQL. The thing that's not so normal about our architecture is that we are super write heavy. So when we first signed up for New Relic, they like used to like profile your application and say, oh, your application looks like a X, you know, looks like a e-commerce site or something, which was like a fun feature. And they were like, your application looks like a video game because it was like lots of micro writes and reads, you know, like as many updates as reads basically. Why so many writes? Like, what's the application doing for those who don't know, who are listening? I'm going to just hand this off to someone else because of sharing. So the application that we're talking about is responsible for quizzing students. So anytime any student answers a question on the website that results in multiple writes uh, to the database, that adds up to a lot of writes, I guess, in, in total. So what's apocalyptic about this? Like we've got a big piece of difficult, maybe impossible to maintain code. It's powering a business critical part of the, the website and it's hindering scalability in some way. I mean, that sounds like annoying, but is it? what's the apocalypse part of this? So the apocalyptic part of this is that like adding up more and more rights will just like bring our database to its knees where we either need to like throttle 
the experience for for the students so that they are like uh, producing less rights which is not great for a student if it like takes a minute to answer one question and that's that's going to be horrible experience for for students so like part of this is that like we've historically we've kind of known that this has been a problem for years because we've like stopped shipping new features in this in the quiz engine because we've tried to do rearchitectures to make it to support like more concurrency and like over the years we've also kept throwing new hardware at it we've tried to you know we've went from having like a relatively small mysql database to having like the third biggest mysql database that amazon provides like the r a million or whatever the memory optimized database we provide and we try to say hey like when we're two steps away it's kind of like the danger zone when we're one step away from the top zones like really like the hot zone and when we're at the very top we're like pretty close to being in a bad place the other thing about like high sql high performance mysql high sql that's what i call it is um brought to you by orange juice is that like mysql you'd expect it to scare like databases in general you'd expect to scale linearly but there's all these like weird hidden locking states and like you find new bottlenecks as you hit the like as you throw more and more hardware at it that you weren't expecting so um, the actual apocalypse is running out of like having a student come to the site trying to answer a quiz and then it taking like a second unacceptable amount of time for that response to be served and we go to Amazon and we're like, well, just give us the next highest database. And they're like, you're already on the highest. There's, can't throw hardware at the problem anymore. We also tried switching to Aurora. I heard that was just supposed to solve all of our problems. Yeah, but it didn't. I wasn't part of that attempt, but Michael, I think you were. We did a couple of things. First of all, we tried to switch to Aurora a while ago, and it was just like worse. The, one of the struggles we have with, and we also tried to move stuff to DynamoDB, which was also like a mess. One of the problems with those databases is that like with MySQL, you have like MySQL 5 and then MySQL 6 or whatever. Five. There is no MySQL 6, but if it was a reasonable place, it would be MySQL 6, you know, MySQL 8. And with Aurora, there's just like Aurora that existed five years ago and Aurora today or DynamoDB five years ago and DynamoDB today. There's no like version numbers. There's no clear change log. So like there's a part of us that like kind of wrote off those technologies, you know, in 20. 20, 2019, because we had a bad experience with them in 2016 or 2017. All of you people with like cloud products, like build a change log. It's really helpful for, for like early adopters to realize that your product isn't trash anymore. But like Aurora was designed for, for like typical MySQL workloads, which are not write heavy. The killer feature for Aurora is like very low latency replication. You can have lots and lots of replicas and they can have basically live data. And like when your problem is write latency, Aurora doesn't really help. DynamoDB helps. When we were using it, there were a lot of problems with kind of balancing hot partitions, which from what I've read is a problem that's gone. But I think that the bad taste in our mouth, plus like the kind of relatively high latencies that it provides compared to Postgres or MySQL were reasons we avoided it. But this like is getting to the point where like how we solved the problem, which was like, I think kind of the interesting part. It's another thing that maybe also played into kind of these other experiments that they're also expensive, kind of going back to the to the spaghetti nature of the copay that even if you have like a solution out there that is supposedly going to fix your problems, but you really want to try it out, it is going to be a lot of effort to come to the point where you know 
whether it's going to work or not. Because Aurora is theoretically like a drop-in replacement for MySQL, right? Yeah. And it for that purpose, it served us. But it just it, it dropped into MySQL and was slower for writes. So When I think about a problem like this, the obvious solution is, well, let's just make incremental progress on it. Let's try to just take this difficult to work with system and let's carve off a chunk of it and try to make it more maintainable. And then we can uh, do that a couple of times and then we'll have a more uh, reasonable architecture and then we can uh, we can start making changes to it. Did we think of that? That's what we did. Most people, when they see it, talk about this problem, they have two major like blanket statements. The first is, well, that's a terrible architecture for a system like that, which like, that's just like not how the real world works. We're like, and then the other thing people say is, well, why don't you just do sharding? And then like just is in bold and underlined and in red. The like incremental progress thing is like, you know, that's like reasonable. That's like a reasonable piece of advice. I guess the hard part of doing incremental process in a complicated code base like that is how are you going to find your chunk to sort of separate off and tangle that bit? Because we tried doing that in 2016. So like there's some history on the project, which is we tried to do a architecture problem project in 2016. We tried to make incremental progress. I think that there's a couple of like lessons learned from the previous attempt. Giuliano isn't here, but if he was, he would tell me about how I'm wrong. One thing is that like one of the lessons learned is that you just need to keep trying something and like expect that it's going to be hard and trying to budget it into some kind of like very limited time frame is like pretty foolhardy for something you haven't, tr- haven't been able to achieve previously. So like a new feature that has a box around it is like something you could be like, oh, we think we can get this done in a certain amount of time. But um, spelunking in an ugly legacy code base can take longer. And that's like one thing that we got with this team, which was like a lot of wiggle room. Like this was a year long project. I don't think we've ever done a year long project at Norwarding before. What was the uh, the original timeframes? For back in 2016, when we were trying to just do small projects. Like one quarter, you know, because a project has to fit into a quarter. If it doesn't fit into a quarter, you shouldn't do it. And this doesn't mean you shouldn't be agile. Like we weren't, we were quite agile in our team this year, in this year long project, but it was um, the idea that you don't have to drop what you're doing when you don't make progress for a sprint or two. It's a necessity with a big, hairy problem. We tried making some, doing these sort of smaller, like one quarter long projects. And uh, like, how'd they go? Did we make any progress? Did we make no progress? What happened? We made negative progress. Negative. We made the system worse, but we didn't roll back the changes that we implemented. You know, like there's this part of a getting out of a local maxima, which is worse. If you don't make it to the next local maxima, then it's just worse. That's what happened at the end of that project. And that's part of this thing of like when your quarter ends and you haven't made it out, but you just left tech debt behind. If you don't have a like have a system for engineers to ha- kind of get priority to clean stuff up, then they won't. Something that I maybe didn't happen before that I think was part of like why we now succeeded is like getting having changes out in production and user facing very quickly and getting feedback almost immediately if like our assumptions about the code that we didn't understand are correct and uh, like our plans, like verifying that the thing we are going to like build to a, like completely is going to work. I think that was part of, of why we made quick progress and 
succeeded in. I mean, so we had this model. One of the big differences between 2017 and today is that we've started developing Haskell expertise at the organization. And Jasper and uh, ex Nordinker Hardy had a lot of successful work. You want to talk about this work, like harnessing schemaless stuff and put wrapping it in schemas? Like this was the kind of foundational work. I don't know if that's necessarily a success story, though. Because it's not been very productive. I think it it helped us now. Yeah, I think that most of the value from that was as a learning exercise and not so much what we ended up producing at the end. But I guess there's a lot of, especially in our real scope base, there's a lot of questions that you constantly have as you read through it, like, can this, does this field always exist? Or what does this data that's flowing through here look like? I mean, I can, I can see that we're reading this one property, but what else is on there? Is this branch ever reached? And those questions can be pretty tough to answer. Like the, the only kind of way we know of to get a definitive answer on that is to add a, some sort of probe into that code, deploy it to production. And then if it hasn't been triggered for a week, then we can feel reasonably comfortable that it's dead. I mean, then you have one data point. And um, another aspect of it is that a lot of assumptions about what the quiz engine does and how it works are not very obvious in the sort of this complicated bit of code. Yeah, it's kind of like you you have a machine that has all these gears and uh, it's kind of it's weird elements at it. And then you look at it and figure out by sort of trying to spend some hours figuring it out and then, oh, it looks like this this thing makes coffee. So like the thing is that the quiz engine is a classic example of the, of the raw extraction where like we have something, you know, in Jasper's metaphor, it's like a drink. It's like a food processor. And like rather than having like a button that just says coffee and then has all the instructions for coffee and then a button for like, you know, corn, very different product, but also edible. It just has like... Lots and lots of nested branching. If you're on one path, this uh, like early programmer obsession with dry, right? And so we end up trying to parse this code, but it's very difficult to understand which of the 27 branches. It's not so outlandish to say 27. There's like a bunch, there's a huge amount of functionality that's kind of baked into this code using a number of different abstractions. Many of the abstractions are borrowed just from MySQL because Rails kind of leads you towards leaning on MySQL for devising your kind of abstraction. So so we have this very complicated code with lots and lots of branching, mostly based on kind of like options and polymorphic subclasses and a bunch of random booleans. And our job is to figure out what does it do and Rails doesn't make that problem particularly easy, especially if you don't have like 100% test coverage. And even if you do have 100% test coverage, often that test coverage is over-constrained. So changing your application ends up mangling your tests. What kind of test coverage did we have? I mean, was it? did we have any tests? So one of the big things that we changed was, so we had a lot of tests asserting on specific database queries. They were similar to the code pass, lots and lots of nested conditionals. If this condition is the case, then add these four queries to the expected outcome. And if not, then add these six queries. And then Jasper kind of has been championing this concept at Nordic called golden tests. Since then, I've just become totally obsessed with golden tests as like I don't understand why, like, that's not the default for every test framework to do, like, 
So a golden test is basically you replace your assertions with a file that's generated from your test setup that like spits out all of the output. So you have an input to the system, the output gets serialized. And when it changes, the tests fail. If you want to keep the new versions of the outputs, you just commit them to your Git history. You know, often when you're writing a test, you put in a dummy value as an expected output, and then you copy that value from the failed test results into the dummy output. You know, sometimes you actually know exactly what it is, but often you just kind of like, you, you assert that the output of, that you get from the failed test is the right one. Golden test skips this step and just says, okay, we're going to commit the current version, similar to a lot of graphical regression testing. It's going to do that with API testing. Is that a reasonable explanation of golden tests? Yeah. And I think especially for tests that produce like a, a lot of output, the test framework doesn't necessarily show you great diffs if that, if that is wrong. And so you spend a lot of time adding additional monitoring to a test that is failing to get the additional information that you need to actually understand why the test is failing. And then you can hopefully fix it. And then you can remove all that extra monitoring as, uh, again. And sort of have to think upfront, like how much detail, like do I want to proactively strip part of the detail that this test is generating so that my, if my test fails, the error messages get less long, which maybe is helpful for some bugs. Uh, in some cases where the test is failing, but then actually that information you actually need that you're throwing away, you actually need in other cases where the test is failing. So I think that golden tests, I think of them as a way to not have to think about that stuff. Like log as much information as you need, log it into a file so you can use other great tools to inspect those files in Git diff and I don't know what else to, to inspect that. We have experience with that. And then it um, doesn't matter if it's, if it's that long anymore. So let's just sum up sort of where we are at this point. So we have this big, really mission critical code base, lots and lots of legacy code, not happy with how it's organized, all of it's in Rails. We have test coverage, but the tests aren't particularly helpful at solving this problem or, or at like giving us confidence to make changes. We tried a couple of smaller, like quarter-sized projects in 2016, made negative progress. All right, so fast forward to I think it was end of 2019 when we decided we were gonna we were going to make a, a much more serious commitment to this, like a year plus. So the first question is, how did we come to that decision, which is actually more like the a year before? So like, I think in a lot of organizations, it's politically difficult to say, hey, we want to make a big commitment to like some tech debt because it's like, well, what? how do you convince a, a school administrator that's going to help them that like we're going to spend all, we're going to make our product not at all better? The way that we did that was we ran some load tests. So like hitting this roadblock of, well, we think it's worthwhile and we have a good feeling for it, but we don't really know. We did load tests and we kind of did, a, and this was like the work of our SRE team, Giuliano Solano and Michael Aaron and Marika Odagaki. But um, we did load test and we'd like, that's like, that's a whole nother like can of worms. But that was why, how we got resources for this in the first place, because we were like, hey, look like the business is over if we don't solve this problem. And that was much more compelling for people than we're worried about it. And I think at other organizations, it would be different, but like, it's hard to fight with the, with like very clear projection of like the sky falling. Right. It's very specific. One argument is like, we have the data that it's, everything is going to go bad. And the other argument is like, well, maybe we shouldn't. So at that point, we got the load test. It's like, okay, this is a concrete specific. We have somewhat of a timeline of like, when the apocalypse might happen if we don't 
do something about this. And it's going to take a lot of resources to do something about this. So what was the plan on day one? Like, what was our grand vision for exactly what we were going to do to fix this problem? I think one thing we, yeah, we didn't have a plan. That one part of the success as well, I think, is first of all, we gave us quite a lot of time to just understand what was actually going on in that co-path. So like we knew which tables were problematic and we went out and just tried to figure out where are actually the queries happening, the writes happening and the reads that caused the problem. And we tried kind of building a small framework around like allowing reads first and afterwards writes um, in parts of the code. So we were able to wrap some functionality in the copath in an allow. And this meant like, here we know it's like a query that is happening. And around the whole thing, we had to deny. And whenever we hit, we tried to read from uh, MySQL, that would cause a test to fail. Um, and in production, it would just like notify us in our monitoring system that here is like an unexpected read happening. This was like this question of like, what is the system actually doing? Well, whatever it's doing with MySQL is what it's doing. The Rails is like kind of stateless. And then MySQL is kind of at state. We didn't know exactly know where, because of active record, obscuring where reads and writes are. We didn't exactly know what data was being read when. This system that we built, I would argue Jasper built it, like helped us, it like kind of prevented active record from making reads and writes when it didn't have explicit permission. So we had to decorate, you know, an active record object in Ruby. You know what I'm talking about? There's this pattern where it's like an ORM that like will read from the database when it reads the, I think it is actually active record pattern. So like active record is, you know, people that have used Ruby and used ORMs know this, like this foot gun that exists in a lot of ORMs that like gets you off the ground really fast because you don't have to worry about reads and writes. And then like, when you have a high performance system, turns out all you care about is reads and writes. And then you're like, well, fuck, you know. So like this system was helping us understand where is active record being used as like piece of data being transferred around the system? And where is active record actually fetching data from the database so that we can like actually know what, what the system is doing? Before we even got to that point, we like did a fair amount of like pretty lightweight planning. We built out a plan for like where we thought we would go, you know, in the year that we had budgeted, but we didn't have any tasks written down, right? We had like, well, in the first like three or four months, we want to start exploring where things are, are. and then the set next three or four months, we want to start like rewriting a lot of this stuff in Haskell. And then we want to like start, once it's rewritten in Haskell, we want to like migrate the backend to something else. We didn't know what, but like something more scalable, scalable could be sharding or could be some other database we hadn't decided yet. But we had this like, the first thing we want to do is we want to control, like we want to understand things and we want to use Haskell to, to control risk. And then we're going to use like some technology to, to provide scalability. But our like plan wasn't like we're going to use this piece of technology besides Haskell. Um, and part of that was that we've like invested a lot in Haskell at Notre Dame and we believe that it can help us control risk. And part of that was like knowing that we failed trying to do these types of refactors in Ruby. And part of that is that we've seen how Haskell allows us to take the wrong abstraction and massage it 
kind of piecemeal into the right abstraction in a way that abstractions we had in Ruby make it more difficult. So we had this kind of like roadmap. And then we also, at the same time, we kind of had this like emergency plan of like, well, if this is like not going to work, let's try to like pull the plug and do sharding. And so we tried to plan on what would that look like. Sharding being kind of like the thing that people say is the simple approach. But I would argue if you ask anyone who has like implemented it, it's not the simple approach. It's just another approach, you know. I agree with that. I think I'd summarize the sort of high level plan between quotes. Let's flee into Haskell as quickly as we can and then do all the hard stuff there. Because we had a lot of experience with Haskell, but also with Elm, with this idea that maybe you have the outside world, which is a little bit weird, and you have all these JSON blobs that can take any shape. But once you've brought it into your Elm application or your Haskell application, then you have some guarantees and you know what's what, and that is going to help you refactor. And um, I think the query detection, like figuring out where the queries were happening, that allowed us to not have to do like we had to change some Ruby code, but we could be very surgical about it and prevent this from turning into a big refactor where because of the tangledness of the whole system, kind of touching one space would have to allow us, would need us to touch other spaces. The problem is with, with sort of the interaction with the database. If we want to cut as kind of as closely to that as possible to prevent us from pulling in more logic and, and therefore more work and on, on the real side, we need to know exactly where those queries are happening so we can do the minimal amount of effort on the real side. So like, rather than this being a, let's rewrite the system in Haskell, this was a, like a, let's extract active record. Let's extract MySQL and let's rewrite the MySQL interaction in Haskell. And that's just the only part that we're going to rewrite in Haskell. But also by finding all the reads, we also were able to see when we did a query deep down in the rabbit hole, we were able to pass that data in and move it kind of further in the, in the chain helping us to like have the reads at the start and then the writes afterwards. So it was like a way of permuting our Ruby code, which was kind of like had a lot of side effects to be much less effectful outside of like our, you would have some secret query hiding in, in the corners and we would like lift it up to the very beginning of the Ruby code to make it less like in the end, not very effectful. First of all, I want to just pause and acknowledge the sentence we wanted to de-risk our code by rewriting it in Haskell. Now, at most companies, <laughs> that's that's a risk. But you mentioned like we'd had a significant investment in Haskell prior to this. Like we kind of knew what we were, you know, getting there. I want to ask somewhat of an obvious question, which is that okay, so it sounds like we found a way to incrementally rewrite certain parts of the Rails code base to make it so that instead of active record doing all these queries in the middle of, you know, conditionals and stuff like that, you just extracted it so that all the queries ran like all the reads and all the writes all ran at the beginning instead of being sort of interleaved with the business logic. And that helped make the system more understandable. So my question would be, if we were able to do that just on the Rails side, why do we need Haskell? Like why bother rewriting in Haskell if we were able to make, you know, this incremental change that made the system less spaghetti-ish, less, you know, difficult to work with? Why not just keep it in Rails after that and just keep going ahead? How much did the, the first portion, sort of the Rails portion of the work, take us? Because I remember us being like incredibly careful about that part. It took us like two or three months. It was not fast. It was slow. I think one of the things that people have to get over is that Joel Spolsky was wrong. Like, period, full stop. Like, this whole thing about not rewriting things, 
it's supposed to be like the gospel, but here's just a guy. This is not a science that we're working on. Writing software is new, you know? People have been making bridges for a thousand years, thousands of years. No one knows how to do this stuff. And people should do major rewrites. And sometimes making major rewrites is a very good decision. So like, that's like the thing is like, oh, it's risky to do the thing. It's like, well, it's sometimes it's really risky not to do the thing. The thing here being like, rewrite in a different technology and then rewriting in haskell like haskell like ooh esoteric language like python sucks <laughs> haskell like we use awful tools like, like python sucks ruby sucks i mean i love this language and it's given me a career like all these languages but like we are living in like in the world of languages that like were developed like a long time ago and there's all these research languages which like live in the future and we just choose not to use them because we like having like because we are conservative and we don't like having good lives you go to like a conference it's weird here in europe because you go to a conference and everyone uses php and it's like just don't do that anymore i don't know like haskell is really is a mess is a terrible mess of a language but it turns out to be like way better than a lot of the like terrible messes that we that people are pretty comfortable using but like the refactors we did later in Haskell were much quicker and like we were actually able to see patterns and like change stuff with confidence, even with like less tests. We feel confident about this because of our experience using Elm, right? The super secret power of Elm and also Haskell shares this is that like you can do like a bazillion line refactor of a code base and at the end... You like maybe didn't write a test and the thing works. And like everyone who comes from like the other, like the, the Ruby Python dynamic language world or like the world where there's like extensive nils and nulls, they're like, oh, well, like they just are saying that because they don't know what software is about. Like they must not be working with complex software or something. But like when you see like a 2000 line PR and you just like hit merge because like you look at the code and it's mostly Elm, it's not like it's impossible to write bugs, but it's just way harder to write bugs. There's like whole classes of bugs that don't exist. Rewriting into Haskell was our way of saying, okay, we know we're going to do a lot of refactors. Rather than refactor in this language that is not make it easy, let's first make the refactors easy. And what is the thing like make the change easy? That's the using Haskell is that. I think we also felt that like the moment we had some code in Haskell, we just started refactoring that there wasn't any discussion around that or any ceremony, whereas... It, on the real side, if we do refactor, then you have kind of these conversations with yourself and with the team, like, yeah, clearly this is the right idea because this much more clearly expresses what's happening in this code and intent is much clearer, but it's also a risk because we don't really know if this will work and will fill in production. So is it worth it to do this change? You just don't have to, it just happens. We just, the code changes just happened. I don't know if that's only Haskell, like our small Haskell portion of the quiz engine code that we were writing that was replacing sort of the little bit of Rails that we extracted. It was a much smaller code base. So that also is kind of in favor of that Haskell code. I think another thing that played into it was that our the Haskell code that we were writing was a separate service. So we were the only team contributing to that. And we could deploy it like multiple times per day if we wanted to immediately get feedback from production traffic on it, which is also not something that we could do on the real side. So I think there's kind of other factors that also... Like breach from existing like legacy process, not just legacy code. Being able to do continuous deployment turns out makes it easier to make faster changes. Well, like there's this thing of like, we felt the thing. The thing that we felt 
was that the reason that Haskell has this refactoring superpower is that in Ruby, if you don't have a test and you make a change and it breaks something, you won't know about it. And if you have a test that's, if you were like, in the end, like you write some tests and you hope that they cover things and you write some integration tests. In the end, with this complicated system, you end up needing a production deploy. And in Haskell, the way that it tightly locks a lot of your code together with its type system, we get many of these types of errors that require testing and then QA and then a production deploy, like 24 hours, we get like immediately from the type checker. So like would be a day change becomes like something that you can do multiple times in a number of minutes. That's the secret power. It's not like we're like, it's just better. You know, there's like a reason why it's better. It makes feedback loops way faster. And then on top of that, like we still need like feedback loops to be faster. So we also did continuous deployment to confirm some of our assumptions or to, you know, we also had regressions in Haskell, but we like, one of the things that we tried to do regularly was make feedback loops as fast as possible. And this investment of migrating to Haskell was was a big part of that. So you mentioned uh, production regressions. Like how often are we talking? Like how badly and how frequently did we break production for, you know, our millions of users during this Haskell rewrite? Zero times. It must have been once or something. So like there were some performance regressions. One of the approaches we took was let's rewrite the thing in MySQL Let's compare our Haskell system to our Rails system to compare to. So before the Haskell system goes live, let's ensure that it's making exactly the same writes and reads that Rails is making. And only after we had done this kind of comparison did we flip the switch and say, hey, let's start moving traffic to Haskell. And so that was our way of limiting risk. So the types of regressions that we had were not the Haskell system doesn't work. We had some regressions around the Haskell system didn't scale fast enough or slow enough. So there were some performance regressions there and, or like, you know, we introduced some kind of hot Haskell path that like was slow, but we didn't introduce any or very few regressions around data integrity or like the Haskell service and the Rails service doing different things. So you mentioned um, like seeing that the queries were the same. How, how do we know if the queries it's generating are actually the same for like production traffic as opposed to just in tests? By running our our test code in production and comparing them in production, when we deployed a little sidecar Haskell application that we kind of built, we pulled out the reads and writes parts of systems. We had a system that did it in Ruby and we had a system that in Haskell that would just generate the queries. And we compared, is that right? We did compare the writes between Redis and MySQL when we finally migrated to Haskell, but I don't think we compared the writes in Haskell, we just like... That was something we did very early, right? Doing the writes in Haskell. I do remember that we always had like one or two sort of safety valves. And we might have used that a couple of times where we deployed something and immediately noticed there was a problem and then just killed it. And usually problems, because we are all in Europe, problems kind of show up when schools in the US start, which is typically at the end of our day. So that was, I think that gave us a lot of calm as well because we could oh, this didn't work out. Well, let's just flip the flag and we'll see about it tomorrow. Yeah, I don't remember how we how we did the ride rollout. That's funny. Like we did the rides synchronously at first and then compared afterwards, I think. 
Also, like one one interesting piece where we also borrowed from Elm that we didn't mention before is that like extracting the right. Like we talked about like how we like push the reads to the beginning of the copath. We pushed the writes to the end by like borrowing from Elm's uh, architecture, like kind of. So update, you know, update returns the new model as well as like a list of commands. And we kind of, instead of moving the actual queries to the end, everywhere where we did a write, um, we created a command that we like returned towards the end of the whole code path. And then we did, like once we had that done, we did uh, just the case statement in Ruby for the fallback to like actually execute those uh, commands and do the writes that previously were like somewhere in the middle of the code. So we replaced all of our nested writes with like descriptions of those nested writes that we would execute in Ruby at the very end. And then a lot of that execution of Ruby code, we translated one-to-one to Haskell. So like before we did this refactoring, we did this, like I would read Stiffel's code and the comments would just be Ruby code that he was like in the middle of refactoring piece by piece. Because I think that's maybe one of the things that also helped, right? Is that we, we had this, this probe, which was basically telling us which queries we were executing like the raw SQL that was going to the database. The way that we do queries in Haskell is also that we have this special macro, basically, where you insert a raw SQL string with some interpolated values rather than using some sort of ORM. So we could literally copy and paste, basically, queries that we saw running on the Ruby site into our Haskell code. and then uh, This is with the uh, PostgreSQL typed library. Everybody always asks me that. <laughs> what do we do for database access at Haskell? That's also an interesting story. We're using this PostgreSQL typed library, but we're using MySQL. How did that work? It's a big hack. <laughs> I think it might have been Michael Newton or Gavin. No, I think it was Gavin. So we are using a feature from Postgres called foreign data sources or something. Wrappers, exactly. So we basically like define the the MySQL database as a foreign data wrapper. And that allows Postgres to understand the schema of MySQL. And then under the hood, we like we created our own macro that is just called MySQL um, SQL or something. And it compares or it like during compilation, it analyzes the query and compares that to the schema that is uh, that is wrapped as a foreign data wrapper. And that gives us compile time errors on like mismatches in types between the query and the actual database and like syntax errors and so on. So at compile time, we're using Postgres to talk to MySQL just so that we can get type checking between the database schema and our Haskell code. But then at runtime, we just go straight to MySQL and there, there is no Postgres. Theoretically, you could get some of this stuff done with MySQL, but no one wrote MySQL typed yet. Okay, so that's how we got uh, sort of Haskell and MySQL talking together. How did we get Haskell and Ruby talking together? Because at, at the beginning, we just had, it was all Rails. There was no Haskell. And so there, there must have been some sort of setup to, uh, and this is a Rails monolith. This is not like we had microservices or something where we could just pull one out and throw in a Haskell one. So how did we intermingle Haskell or introduce Haskell into that Rails monolith? At first, we were really concerned about latency. And so we were like, okay, we want to be able to do things in Haskell really quickly with really low latency because we're introducing this complexity between MySQL and Rails. 
And so we decided to like, how do you reduce latency? You reuse like no protocol and you, you, you co-locate. So we like deployed our Haskell applications as sidecar apps onto the, you know, as basically as the same deploy bundle as our rails application. So like when we deployed rails, we deployed a little Haskell with it. And then we communicated to rails via socket. Why? Just talk to a socket, roll your own protocol. Was it the right thing to do? Well, no, maybe sure. But it was like this thing where we got the proof of concept working and like the deploy stuff working and everything. And then it was like, well, we're not going to do it again. Maybe we would have done just like a usual HTTP web server or something and not a, like we have all this infrastructure for deploying a Haskell app onto like the internet where it can talk to things. And in retrospect, we probably should have tried that before we built our sidecar, like this complicated second deployment system. One thing the sidecar gave us was that on a single request from the student, there's how many queries do happen? Like typically, is it 20 or something like that? And we wanted to start like incrementally pulling this stuff out of to, out to Haskell, right? So you kind of have to expect if you just start writing a, a random query in Haskell, that's one round trip. You do an additional query, that's another round trip. So you're extra worried about latency at that point. Like the, th the place where we would end up is that we would all do all the writes. We'd only need to make a, a single request to Haskell. It would do all the writes and then the response would come back. But we weren't there yet because we were still sort of incrementally pulling stuff out. Like we could call Haskell as freely as we wanted to because latency was so low. And we would even go back, right? Because another problem with this incremental moving stuff out was that all these writes were happening in a single MySQL transaction to make sure that if one part of the writes didn't work, the entire transaction would fail and wouldn't like commit half of the data, which would result in sort of data corruption issues. But now we had a problem because if we want to do like one of these queries in Haskell and the other ones are in Rails, you cannot have them both in the same transaction. And so one thing that our socket server was doing was that Haskell we had all sort of this type stuff in Haskell. And like we changed the runtime behavior for MySQL queries to not use PostgreSQL type, but rather go directly to MySQL, we're doing a similar thing here. We'd rather, instead of Haskell going to MySQL, Haskell would use the same socket to give a raw query back, for, back to Rails. So Rails would ask Haskell to do a thing. Then Haskell would say, okay, this is the query you need to execute. And it would send that back to Rails to actually execute it inside of the same transaction that all the other stuff was happening in as well. So that added even more latency. That was something that we could only really do on this on the socket server, because yeah, if you try that over HTTP, then the, the latency to do this for every single request would be like so. Like in Haskell, it looked like we were running a query, and it was type checked like all of our other Haskell queries. But actually, it was just like the output was the query back to Rails. Okay, so to sum up you know, where we are at this point, we we started off with this giant, messy Rails code base, legacy code really difficult to make changes we'd spent you know multiple quarters trying to make incremental progress on it made negative progress took a whole like we're going to take a year plus just allocate this time ahead of time to fix this problem to avert the database apocalypse the approach was first take a couple of months just understanding what's going on with this massive legacy code then take another couple of months to rewrite it in haskell and that brings us to the third phase, which was let's actually fix the problem. Let's actually avert the apocalypse. It's like we've got maintainable code in Haskell now. We're ha we're comfortable making changes quickly to it. What do we do from there to actually fix the original problem? So first we'd like decide like what was the architecture we wanted. Like before we wrote any code, 
we decided what the architecture we wanted was. And that was like its own story. Like we evaluated a bunch of different database technologies and, and what have you based on latency and Haskell compatibility and like we had a whole rubric. And we like ended up deciding on, and horizontal scalability was a big question. We ended up deciding that like the technologies that we were going to use were was basically just Redis, you know, don't keep it simple. We're going to move all of our MySQL writes and reads to Redis. And then we also decided to use Kafka for like other parts of the complexity. So like once we decided that we wanted to read and write from Redis, then we wrote all of the code to like, we had an idea of an API from Rails. It was going to say, hey, I want this data. Then I want this shape of data back. And that was the API we had to provide. And MySQL had been providing that API previously. So we were like, oh, how do we shove this data that MySQL has into Redis? So we started writing to Redis and then reading from Redis. And when we read from Redis, we compared exactly what we were going to send back to Rails from what our existing MySQL code that was already live in production in Haskell did. We built a whole second system, which did all of the storage and reading in, in Redis. Then we like would deploy it. We would had some had some kind of different probes that said, hey, this information is different than what we expected. And then we would like fix some stuff or write some tests to like massage the Redis, the code that wrote and read from Redis towards exactly the same code that MySQL, the, the same data that MySQL would return. And eventually, like we got to a point where it was the same. And then we were like, okay, we're done. And then we sw- we kind of switched the, we said, hey, you know, now that Redis is providing the right data, we can just use that data. So like that was the way that we, we limited risk by using a lot of live data and making sure that the Redis data was exactly the same as the MySQL data before we migrated. I mean, another big peach piece of this is that like we didn't, it's a really big system and my, the MySQL tables that we were using, they're used by lots and lots of pieces of, this, pieces of the system. We didn't like fix the whole system. We fixed this edge of the system, which is the students using the site, which is like the main source of usage. But like MySQL is still there. And that's where we, we had Kafka. We would just like all of the things the students did, we now have basically a bespoke like have a bespoke bin log for quiz engine data where we write stuff to Redis and then we stream it to MySQL at our own pace. We can kind of scale it down, scale it to whatever, you know, if MySQL is under heavy load, we can delay the data we put in MySQL to later because it doesn't impact the kind of the main real-time usage of that data for students. Okay. So we averted the apocalypse successfully. Hooray. I just want to retrospect back on, on just like one last piece and we can kind of wrap up. I think Looking back, maybe there are three different, like broadly speaking, paths we could have taken. So one is no rewrite, just keep going in Rails and try to get to this final place that we ended up in. We're no longer worried about this potential apocalypse, like we've averted the apocalypse. Scenario two is do what we actually did, which is rewrite it in Haskell and then use that as a a way to facilitate getting to this point. And then scenario three is do a rewrite, but don't do it to Haskell. Do it with something more conventional like TypeScript or C Sharp or Java or something like that. Go. So I'm kind of curious what everybody thinks of those three different scenarios. Like what's the plausibility that we would have 
succeeded in each of those? And also, do we have regrets? Do we wish that we'd done one of those others? Do we think that one of the others would have, if, if we'd succeeded, left us in a better place? What do you think? I don't know if any of those options would necessarily have failed. Like, I think the first one would definitely be the, the riskiest because, well, just based on our previous experiences and uh, you make a change and you think it's going to have one effect, but how sure are you really that it's actually going to have that effect? Couldn't we just write more tests? Just TDD harder. You first have to, I don't know, you could write integration tests. We did a bunch of that. I don't think are going to enough coverage of such an enormous application because of just all the many, many combinations of things that can happen. You'd have to write also some kind of smaller case test, I guess, on the components. And that would require you to first identify the components, which, I don't know, that's hard by itself. And the fact that you have to write all these tests kind of like locks you into your assumptions about the shapes of things. And then when you decide that you want to re-massage in a different direction, then all your, you have to throw away all your tests. So I think that like, we like, we're big into types. I think that if this was the same company, but it was three years ago and we said, hey, let's do a rewrite in Haskell, it would have been a disastrous decision because we had no expertise. There are certain languages which are more or less batteries included. And if you're going to start writing Haskell or Clojure, and it's like best to like make your decisions before you start building stuff or else you're like, you're like kind of trying to solve two problems at the same time. So in our case, I mean, Jasper, based on what you said, it sounded like not only would sticking with Rails have been riskier than rewriting in Haskell, but actually it would have been more expensive, taken longer. Does that sound right? Yeah. Though if you want to like a really fair comparison, I guess we'd have to compare it to doing all the same stuff that we did. Maybe your option three, I guess, like rewrite parts of it in a separate place, except you'd also rewrite that in Rails. So you maybe set up like a separate Rails server and, and start building it in there. And I don't know, I think maybe this wouldn't have been the best team to try something like that. It could have worked. And I'd have been worried that new Rails code base would sort of in time develop the same problems that we currently have with our current Rails code base. But I don't know if it would have necessarily failed. I do think that having like compile time type checks and algebraic data types make it easier to model a complicated system in a way that makes sense. And then like you get to reap the benefits in the future when you're trying to cha make changes to this complicated system. So like you can do it without those tools, but you have to replace those tools with some other, you know, approaches to abstraction and and you don't get these kind of long-term benefits. I mean, the other thing is that this is a piece of code that we're not throwing away. It's like a central piece of infrastructure. And when people come to this code in the future, who don't know what it does, they will have some, like a reasonable amount of confidence that they can change it in a way that they just wouldn't in a well-tested Rails application, just because of the nature of the complexity of the system. Like you don't get that, that changing this over here messes with this piece over here very easily. You don't kind of communicate that very easily in Rails and it's kind of implicit in the type system. As a quick aside, because I think it's it's interesting, Michael, um, hearing you say that, just for people listening, what's your background with Ruby and Rails? And what's your background with Haskell and Elm in terms of like your career and how much time you spent with them? I like my first big kid job was at Scribd, which was at the time the biggest Rails, Rails code base on the, on the internet. I guess now it's probably Shopify or Stripe or something. 
And I've been, you know, NoRedInk built its whole application in using Ruby and Rails. I would say like I'm a expert level Ruby and Rails programmer. Like how many years are we talking professionally? I did my first Ruby, like full-time Ruby and Rails gig was in 2000 and well, there was zero there, like 2007 or 2008, but it was like, you know, around that time. So more than a decade. Over a decade. Yeah, yeah. And how about Haskell and Elm? I would say that I became a reasonable Haskell developer on this project. I started on Haskell a few years ago, but I didn't spend that much time on it. The thing about Haskell though, compared to Elm, like it's a hard comparison because Elm is like this big. So and I, for those that are listening at home, a very small amount. It's like a tiny language. It's like way smaller than JavaScript. It's way smaller than like whatever language you think is small. It's smaller than that language. It's hard to wrap your head around a little bit, but it's a really like, it's one of the nicest things about, about Elm. You don't need a lot of experience to get yourself pretty far in Elm. I taught my shrink Elm. That was like how, you know, like he's like, has a no technical background and he's like a pretty, he built his landing page for his coaching landing page in Elm. So, you know, like it's not a versus, um, Haskell is like a, is very broad and very deep, but still like the last, you know, I've been writing Haskell and if you focus on not the whole Haskell world, it's very easy to become quite productive in Haskell. So when you're talking about like the maintainability gap between Rails and Haskell, you're not coming from a position of inexperience with either. <laughs> it was very hard. Yeah. Yeah. But also like we live in our own echo chamber here at Noradank, right? Have you ever heard of Noradank? We use Elm and Haskell here. I'm very interested how people manage that complexity at like say Nubank, which is a huge application that like is a bank. They have to like not drop money and they use Clojure, right? But they also use like Datomic, right? Which is a, you know, there's like certain tools. Okay. So the last question was, let's say we've committed to a rewrite. Why would we choose Haskell over TypeScript, over Java, over Go? Or did, did we make the right choice? Like, would, do in retrospect, do we wish we'd use a different technology? So I think, like, one important factor in the success wasn't just, like, the approach or the language or, like, yeah. what we chose. Um, it was also, like, how we worked together. Um, also, like, as a backstory, we all know each other for a long time and, like, pretty well. And we kind of had a lot of freedom in how we approached this problem and how we worked together. And we were pretty quickly able to figure out how we all best perform and how we can support each other in a way that like allows us to like output the best we can. And I think that was like much bigger than actually what database we like, obviously that is a factor, but like, I think we could have done it in a different language and probably with the same result, just because we, we kind of like from the get go, we knew how we want to approach this like we had similar values in how we think we can build something that is going to work like getting feedback quickly that's like a value that we all share or like everyone works on the same thing so that we all have the same context is also something that we all believe in and i think that's like a big part here also like there's this thing about when you're planning a team i think that often like some you're going to see engineers as resources this project needs three engineers, right? And like, there's the the qualities of the engineer that are more than their technical expertise, which is another thing that like, you know, if I was going to be a, a really careful about my engineering planning, I'd want a good mix of starters and finishers. 
I'd want people that are like more or less constrained by, you know, constrained by existing systems, more people that are like risk averse and willing to take on risk. And we have that in this team, for instance. I am more of a finisher finisher and Jasper is more of a starter. So like there's like a spike in a direction and then there's like someone to be like, hey, we need to do the long tail. In your assessment of like, oh, we need to staff this team with three engineers and two of them have to be front end and two of them have to be back end, like you miss a lot of the important qualities that make that create synergies on a team. Yeah. So it's like the individuals and their styles and like what they're good at and like where their strengths and weaknesses are and and like how they complement each other. And we've all been on teams where like people will like spike ahead and be really creative and, and like just leave something half done. And that's like not that's like actually bad on a team unless there's someone there to like flesh it out and build the rest of the, you know. And also we almost immediately introduced a feedback process where we were able to give it each other feedback like in a very effective way and, and uh, time time sensitive. And I think that also helped us like immediately see problems and improve and, and help each other out. Yeah. And we all agreed that it was the, was important that we use Jira and we have 20. So we didn't do any project management. We just had like a piece of paper. And then at the top of the paper, we had like four checkboxes. Like, this is what we have to get done. That was our project management for like a year and a half. And then whenever we ran out of boxes, we'd like add some more boxes. And then everything got done and we didn't like do a lot of prioritization. We would meet like once a week to do a prior, like to figure out what we had to do next. But we just didn't waste time thinking about when to do some, like a lot of this like planning stuff. We just like, just said, off. just like, we're going to get it done. We kept this in balance with productivity and like with accountability by saying, well, like our, we had a plan for where we were going to be every quarter. And we beat, this is the first time I've ever done this on a software team. We beat every milestone that we wanted to set. It's not a normal thing. So maybe the key to like, to making engineering teams more productive is just getting out of the way. No, so I don't think it's so simple, but I do think that there is a, there's a significant cost and that we use to, in the interest of predictability, it's just actually mostly cost. There's not a huge amount of benefit. So bringing it back to technology, it sounds like the conclusion is we didn't need to do it in Haskell. It would have been fine if we did it in TypeScript or Java or something in terms of success. I think it was a good choice for us given our experience across the company with Elm and the fact that we are, I think, pretty big fans of Elm. And Haskell is maybe not the only language, but like a language that allows us to use a lot of the same patterns on the back end as well. So I think that's why it's a, a good choice. So a good choice for us, but maybe not a good choice for every team. Yeah. So I think that the reason that Haskell serves us is so like there are more complicated pieces of software than the quiz engine written in assembly. They exist. And the question is not like, could you do it? But the question is like, how do you do it without significant regression in a timely fashion. And I think that it's very difficult. It's kind of apples and oranges to say, how would another team do it? But it is reasonable to say that we benefited from the tools we used. And we got to see, we got to directly compare the same code base in Ruby and Haskell. And it was very clear that once it was in Haskell, it was, I would almost say trivial 
to start building better abstractions around the same data in a way that it wouldn't necessarily be as easy in a language that has a concept of null or nil that you can kind of drop into accidentally or a language without algebraic data types. And I can also imagine a language with some type of like abstraction tool, like ADTs that I haven't used that I'm not quite familiar with that would make it even easier. But like the languages that you listed, they're not those languages. Like people aren't, aren't like, hey, you should use Java because of like they, what they talk about is interop and performance, but um, they're not particularly well suited for the, the problems that Haskell helped us solve. All right. This one's gone pretty long. So I, I think, no, it was, it was good. We talked about a lot of interesting stuff. So I think maybe we'll just skip the picks for today and just uh, just wrap up there. Any, any closing thoughts before we uh, sign off? I think that one thing is that if you're interested in using Haskell, we are interested in open sourcing more of our half Haskell toolkit, which is very similar to Elm. And we've open sourced a lot of it piece by piece but it's really an internal tool. And if we could find collaborators for that, we will give you the decisions that we've made in exchange for you making your life better and writing bug-free software faster. We built a lot of tools in the making of the making of this this podcast and, um, and it would be great if other people started using them. Yeah, like maybe adding on to that, I think a small piece that is easy to use and will like improve your tests is just picking the testing library that is included in our open source Haskell work um, because it like also contains a golden test functionality uh, which we've relied on heavily I think those are the kind of that's some of the tooling that we build for the long run I think what's interesting is that both in terms of processes and tools we've both built for the long run and also during the project we've constantly been building things for we need this tool or we need this process to get us through the next obstacle, and then we can throw it away again. And sort of keeping keeping an eye on both, I think, helped a lot in making this all end. Is a big word, but making it go well so far. All right, let's uh, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much, all three of you, for uh, both for coming on the podcast and also uh, for averting the apocalypse. Really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.